0: Hello, and welcome to the Chain Bridge podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute. We host the podcast, we're based in Budapest, and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media, and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal not only of challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but also of tempering new orthodoxies with old truths. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by our senior visiting fellow, David Jusenberry and our former visiting fellow, Dr. Callum Nicholson. Welcome to
1: this new episode of the Cambridge Podcast. Today, our guest is Eric Hendricks Kim. Eric is a sociologist and a visiting fellow at Matthias Corvinus Collegium here in Budapest, and previously held positions at Bonn and Beijing University. Today he's with us to discuss China, the West, and the near future of geopolitics, as well as his forthcoming essay in Telos, The Polemics of China's Counter-Cosmopolitanism. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So it's an interesting time, obviously, to discuss China. And when we started this podcast almost a year ago, a few months before the Russians invaded Ukraine, our first guest was the war correspondent, Julius Strauss. And he said at the time when we asked him about the war, we said, any predictions? And he said, anyone who knew... If a war would happen or not was lying because it was impossible for anyone to really know and obviously we're currently now hearing more rumblings about china building up to in an attempt to annex taiwan so in keeping with our oldest tradition on this podcast we have to ask you do you have any predictions
0: oh predictions yeah those are those are fun well the the only thing i can predict is that if a taiwan invasion occurs that would be an enormous tragedy for the 21st century world because it would lead to uh, catastrophic economic sanctions uh the, the trade the trade with uh the trade volume with china is uh, 10 times over the or the that of the trade volume with russia so if you cut yourself off from china that's that's really the end of the world economy uh yeah so that's not a future i would like to see I, i'm just um uh, I, I I notice these days people speak with a certain lightheartedness about the prospect of a new cold war and decoupling whereas these are uh, I I'm, I think these are actually ex- extremely terrible things and I think people underestimate how bad that would be
1: well that's a sort of NATO question I think uh, David has a, an EU question for you on the same yeah, lines'
2: it's, it's a bit of a, a two-part EU question I mean um One, I'm just curious whether you have any thoughts on the most recent visit, I mean, just a couple of days ago, of Olaf Scholz uh, to Beijing. I mean, this is quite a significant move, it seems, Uh, not only from a European, but from an American perspective. And then the other is, um, and I I shared this uh, uh, article with Callum, but there have been a number of reports recently about so-called chinese police stations in various countries in europe most recently in austria and i'm curious if you have, you can shed any light on this sort of uh momentary scandal
0: well i've 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 read up on those uh a li- i've tried to read up on those police stations but um I, as far as i'm aware it's not so clear what they what they do so i wouldn't uh i i'm not so i i realized that uh the concept of state sovereignty is extremely important. So, if there would be informal police stations, that would be a a, a, a principle. That would be a problem in principle. Um, uh, about about the uh, the German Bundeskanzler going to uh, to China on a trade mission, that should be a routine exercise because uh, Chinese factories are extremely important for the. Uh, for 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 uh, as a production side for German industry, especially for the car industry, so there uh, it shouldn't raise any um, it shouldn't be surprising and it shouldn't raise questions that the Bundeskanzler is going to uh, to China uh, on a diplomatic mission. Um, but of course, in these days, it was it was controversial. So a lot of people are moralizing it, um, but. I don't really know what to do with it because if you would take that moralism seriously and would say, "Oh no, the Bundeskanzler is not shouldn't talk to China," like, the Bundeskanzler doesn't talk to China. Who's going to talk to China? You cannot, you cannot not talk to one point f- a country with one point four billion billion people and the largest industrial uh, producer in world history. So, uh, so I try to stay away from the moralism and and look at it from a more um, realistic point of view. And I would I think that uh, also strategically. Uh, it would be better to to in general if we would if we would uh, stay away more from the moralism because we have a public sphere which is extremely oriented towards moralizing arguments and it often stands in the way of of actual analysis and also strategic uh, positioning. Like you cannot have a diplomatic a serious diplomatic strategy or a serious political strategy or serious serious economic strategy if you're just if are just stuck on if you stay stuck on this level of of. Uh, one-dimensional moralism which is it's not the world is just too complex for that that's not going to work
1: on that point uh, i have also i mean i think we've all noticed the way that there is uh, uh, the the world now publicly seems to be run on the basis not necessarily of what is the case but what people say ought to be the case but often there's a performativity to that of a some people call it virtue signaling i suppose Mm -hmm. Uh, but virtue signaling isn't just individuals with social justice issues or whatever it may be but also geopolitically, it seems we see presidents uh, virtue signaling, uh, condemning countries uh, for, for, for what advantage, I'm not sure. Often we see the U.S. president condemn someone, then have to go to that country. And it's quite awkward, um, as the current president did, I think, in Saudi Arabia recently. And, uh, and I wonder, what, what do you think accounts for that tendency now to moralize, that uh, the, the growth of that um, pattern or, or that uh, norm in contemporary international affairs?
0: Well, I don't, I don't dare to, to just off the bat speculate about the deeper social cultural roots of this turn, but it is, it is a question that uh, uh, that I'm preoccupied with uh, intellectually because to me it is obvious that this moralizing turn in public discourse is uh, doing us all a disfavor and is even, is even potentially dangerous at this point. Uh, we have. We need to make a, a, a. We need to change our public culture, towards uh, um, we uh, towards a, a a culture where virtue signalling is is punished, instead of it's this would be dismissed broadly dismissed as unserious instead of cheered on. So now we have all these pil- politicians being rewarded by this by virtue signalling. So there's an incentive on moralizing virtue signalling. The problems in the world are much too serious to be approached in such a frivolous manner.
2: One of the things you point out in your article about which we're we're going to be talking is that sometimes what appears to be um, sort of a a confusing phenomenon, whether it's in a system of thought or something else, is actually part of the point. Um, So we're we're going to be talking about Chinese conceptions of of the world and of the West, and you, you Draw attention to some of their kind of internal contradictions and argue that this is part of the value of the theory, potentially. And I'm curious whether, in a sense, one could ask not only why, in terms of cultural causes, we are entering this kind of weird, almost hysterical level of kind of moralizing, but also ask the question: Is this wh- what political purposes is this serving? And is is what we regard as a disservice actually part of the the value? of the behavior to certain other Western
1: uh, parties. I mean, to, to, to those who are really trying to ramp up, let's say, a confrontation. Is that is that sort of the idea that we think we're looking at uh, three-dimensional chess and someone's playing four-dimensional chess? Is that sort of the, the idea? Yeah, then? I think so. Yeah.
0: But I'm not sure if, if... I wish four-dimensional chess was being played here, but I, I, I really suspect a lot of people of, of being in a two-dimensional game uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, because I don't see what... Sur- what uh, uh, who benefits from a, uh, a new Cold War? I, I don't. I know that America. There are certain elites in the United States would benefit from it uh, because they are threatened by uh, the, the rise of China. That is that is true. But oh, but most people, and especially the the broader masses, making these moralizing, having these moralizing instincts and 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 response, uh, responding almost automatically in a moralizing way. Uh, to, to to anyone trying to um, mm, mm, um, bridge bridge cultural and political distances, uh, we are uh, uh, we are looking at the prospect of a new cold war, and and, and that should threaten that, that's very threatening. And I think that people are uh, not aware of of how s- how deeply sad uh, the consequences of that will be. For instance, right now. Anyone who's doing something with China has seen this, in the, has experienced in the last few years how terrible it is to um, for for the for the world to 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 um, to break up. So I, a friend, Australian friend of mine, hasn't seen his Chinese fiance for for two years. Uh, I was I was supposed to start an associate professorship at Shandong university and my employment there has been postponed because of Corona measures. So now this is with the China situation, it's still Corona, but it it already gives a glimpse of what a a new cold war war would look like, namely not being able to be mobile across borders. And then I see all these people moralizing on Twitter and it's easy to do, but do realize that all kinds of people have family ties. We have diasporas, uh, we have in all fields and societies, academic exchanges, uh, uh, people who've been working in education, uh, educational exchange between the United States and China, has seen have seen the disaster of the of the political of the political uh, tensions working themselves out in in society. So this this if you if you start a new Cold War, the line you're gonna cut the line straight through people's lives. So this is not this is not a fun. It it's not it's not fun and heroic and cool and daring. It's actually very. It's gonna produce. Enormous amount of sadness in 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 people's lives.
1: So that's very interesting, and and you know we've started talking about your I think it's a good way to pivot to your your article in uh, in Telos, uh, the polemics of China's counter cosmopolitanism. And so in this, you've noted, and it's very interesting, you've noted this. You've almost done a taxonomy of of this sort of cottage industry of intellectuals within China who are trying to reimagine a world order that's less American centric. Mm-hmm and which attempts to reframe the world in a way which positions China as a sort of harmonious contrast, is your phrase, Mm -hmm. uh, to the West. So with these movements within China, these intellectual trends, uh, what's the main thrust of this contrast they're positing? Or indeed, is there even a consensus within China on that?
0: Well, the the essay I wrote is really about a particular academic and intellectual field, and it's not entirely clear... How politically influential this field currently is, and how influential it will be. I mean, the official politics in China is still revolves around uh, Xi Jinping' thought on uh, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era. That's the uh, the official phrase. Um, and in the the, the the latest Party Congress, the 20th Party Congress, we have seen a more assertive Chinese Communist Party. Um, a, a, a party that prognoses that China will be a leading player or the leading player in thirty years' time from now, um, but uh, at par- official party congresses, we haven't seen these kind of wild attempts to philosophically reimagine the world. This is really something that's done by by academic, uh, by 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 scholars in prestigious Chinese universities. So we should should make clear these, the field I'm, I was working on is, is definitely interacting with official politics, responsive to official politics, and uh, not marginal, uh, intellectually definitely not marginal, uh, but at the same time also not the official line. So the official line is still very particularistic. There's still a defensiveness to the official, even though there's now more ambition being... Uh, on display in the uh, official political rhetoric, where it, there is the pro- this prognosis of China becoming the leading country at some point in the near future, uh, there is still a very much a defensive um, um, aspect to political uh, discourse, official political discourse, because China poses uh, poses as this cultural particular. Chi- Chinese socialism has this this culturally. Has this uh, cultural particularity, Zhongguo uh, Zhilu Chinese, it's socialism with Chinese characteristics, and and it's 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 a defensive move. It says these universalisms coming from the West, liberal democracy, uh, liberal interpretations of human rights, which are which are weaponized against China in the political sphere. These things are uh, these things are are fake universals. We have. We the, we are actually living in a world of, of of civilizational particulars, and that's very much the leading the leading uh, vision in China politically. But then in a, a a a a a new newly arising philosophical field of world philosophizing, which I wrote my essay about, there are already some scholars and thinkers who are going far beyond this and already uh, picturing a world in which China is not just. A cultural particular defending itself against aggressive, aggressive, fake universalisms from the West, but where China is the China carries the seed of a future world civilization. And where China is the country that, through its historical tradition, brings into t- to the world a true worlding spirit. And these are intellectual moves which actually would recenter the world on China. In, in certain ways, although it must be said that in this field, um, there, uh, ch- thinkers are still very cautious to avoid, most thinkers are still very cautious to avoid sounding imperialistic. Uh, so they will constantly stress that they are actually on the side of particularity, but their their vision on particularity is somehow universal. So it's it's a little bit twisted up, as you've seen in the essay, it's a little bit complex and blurring, uh, but I think that's the... Um, that would be my overview.
2: I have one question. We'll come back to China in just a moment. But you, you have a number of very interesting comments since we're broadcasting from Budapest. You have a number of very interesting comments on the fact that a certain kind of uh, suspicion of Western universalism has a history in Europe and, and specifically in Central Europe. Uh, I'm curious if you could just frame this conversation in terms of European history a bit.
0: If you look at how Central Europe and Hungary relates in its relates to Western Europe and, 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 and the dominant centers of culture in the West, you can, you also notice some tension, but there is a, um, conceptual complexity there, namely that, um, Hungary and Central Europe very much want to be part of the West. So Orban actually in a recent speech, which he gave in Romania, uh, reflected on this, on this tension and he, he, um, formulated the thesis that Hungary should be uh, the new West or a better version of the West. So it's still it's still possible to see cent- the Central European and Hungarian challenge as a kind of I- Western internal challenge. Uh, when you have such a thing, if you you know if we if you could posit such a thing as Western civilization, you could see it as an internal challenge. But of course there are some parallels. Uh, with these challenges formulated in other parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, um, those those challenges tend to to Western universalism tend to be uh, uh, particularly anti, like straightforwardly anti-Western. So in uh, uh, in China, the uh, the Chinese field of world philosophizing is very much anti-liberal and anti-Western across the board. In I think in Russia, which I haven't studied, but just a uh, uh, just a uh, just just a brief glance already shows that there's a, there's a strong there's strong anti-western and anti-liberal tendencies, and the same would be uh, when we look at um, pan-Islamist inspired visions. So throughout the world, there are these there are these civilizational non-western civilizational states which try to break out of the Western America-centric sphere of influence out of its. Orbit of recognition and legitimacy, and want to center the world in its own polity, its own its own political values, and develop their own sense of cosmopolitanism and centeredness. and And these these, these attempts are um, um, they they are very much um, in an incipient phase, philosophically speaking because these philosophers are really like they're just trying they're just you know trying to formulate alternative world visions but it's not it's not clear how far they haven't gotten so far necessarily um but it's there there's definitely a different quality more radical quality to their work uh, than what you're seeing in central europe right now uh, and in hungary which i would i would i would describe hungary as a as a as a bit of a, a rebel, it's a rebellious force, right? And I think that the Chinese are more than just a rebellious force. They actually there is actually a push among uh, Chinese uh, intellectuals to create a a different world and have China play a, a radically different role in it.
2: So while we're while we're discussing Europe, just very briefly before we get back to China, I'm curious if you could comment. I mean, to what extent? is the West and liberalism simply one and the same from from the perspective we're discussing? I mean, I was, I was really struck by the fact that some of the theorists you discuss are still talking about the Romans, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and somehow for them, it seems, and that's what I'm asking, it seems that the Roman legal tradition and liberalism sort of blur into one another yeah. seamlessly. Is this accurate or, or is there a sense that perhaps liberalism is a particular phase or moment in the West?
0: Yeah, so one of the uh, interesting qualities of Chinese intellectual life is that there is a tendency to speak in extremely sweeping terms about civilizational essences uh, in a way that would make any civilizational theorist in the late 19th century in Europe uh, cringe. Uh, it's, uh, so there is there is a tendency to conflate uh, the West with the Roman spirit with, uh, and, and then to see liberalism as a direct outflow of it and also to the... To then conflate all of that with Christianity, but of course there is. But then, but then of course there is something to it. I mean, as you as you know, David, uh, 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 the Roman world was the the locus for the for the spread of Christianity, and Christianity is is very much if there is such a core, if there is a core to Western civilization, it's probably Christianity, and liberalism is in many ways, uh, in many complex ways, deriving from that tradition. Uh, but you know, look at it from a Chinese point of view. Uh, until ar- around 1900, uh, you had all these Christian missionaries coming to China trying to spread the teaching of Christ. And at some point, the missionaries were replaced by people uh, uh, giving sermons about uh, liberal human rights. So first, first the Chinese were not fully civilized because they were not they were not Christian. And then a, a generation later, they were not fully civilized because they were not. Uh, they, had, hadn't, they hadn't fully adopted liberal democracy and liberal human rights. Um, so from a Chinese point of view, there's, it's, it's clear that there is some continuity on the Western side. And especially in the standoff, there is, a, uh, there is quite some, some continuity. So
1: this is a good uh, jump off for a question I have for you, which is that, I mean, very clearly the West, speaking very generally here, the West uh, or the imperial West, the nations which had great empires in the last couple of centuries, famously drew positively on classical ideas and precedents for their own imperialisms. A lot of our legal systems, of course, derive from Rome, a lot of our philosophical assumptions from the Greeks as well. And I'm wondering what China's guide is, because I I, I saw that you wrote that one scholar, Jiang Shigong, talks of the Chinese as World Empire empire 2.0, with the first, the 1.0, being the Anglo-American World Empire, which suggests they are looking to us but perhaps by negation rather than positively saying we want to replicate that as we did to the classical world. They're saying we want to just not be that. But I'm wondering to what extent this is true or to what extent my interpretation here is correct. Um, uh, because the the alternative is, well, I suppose my question is, how much are they drawing in their ideas of, of a Chinese future empire, future world or a Chinese oriented one? How much are they drawing on the West by negation or positively on their own history? I mean, for instance, the as an example of drawing on their own history some have argued and i've certainly you know uh, thought that the belt and road initiative the famous sort of in- international development project of the chinese now seems to be a sort of modern version of the tributary system the tser uh, feng which was established under the tang dynasty and some people say it was just a, it's a global version of what used to be a regional tributary system so to what extent are the chinese now with their with their um, their, their global outlook are they drawing on our Western traditions, even if it's by negation or their own history?
0: Oh, wow, that's really. Uh, gets straight into the. Uh, how do you how, how is this idiom in English the the meat of it? Or the, <laughs> yeah. the, um, so there there is a, a a counter quality to all these uh, Chinese world visions. There, um, that is what differentiates Western centric, America centric, and liberal centric. Uh, World conceptions, on the one hand, from all the alternatives being uh, produced currently around the world, is that the first category um, really has the is is power is ideologically hegemonic enough to simply formulate a world vision without the counter being the counter world vision being very explicit in the theory. Uh, Whereas all the other uh, cosmopolitan. uh, alternative cosmopolitanisms, alternative world conceptions, are very much presented as alternatives, as counters, and hence have that which they are trying to negate, namely the Western-centric and liberal uh, visions, very much within them. So it's their, the negation. The negation is very uh, is very prominent. So they are. They are. That's why I also titled my essay. Chinese counter cosmopolitanism, because this is it's really a counter cosmopolitanism. So they're trying to negate everything, has a polemical contra- context very explicitly. They're trying to negate and challenge and break away from a Western sense of cosmopolitanism and a Western sense of universalism. Um, and then, of course, they're trying to look at their own tradition in doing that. But in, and then, and then, so for instance, the Chensha school, which is uh, probably the most uh, uh, a Most uh, prominent school within this uh, field of new field of world philosophizing, but also the Zhang uh, which, uh, which you, who you mentioned, um, they are they are looking for to revive something about ancient uh, from ancient Chinese civilization, and they're actually drawing on a on this notion of Chensha, which is a an imperial notion. So this is where it gets a little bit complicated. It's an imperial notion. Um, that existed up to, let's say, the, the early 20th century. It was it was really a a, a formative idea in the in in Chinese political thought uh, of an idea of the means all in the heaven. The idea of a harmonious world, uh, harmonious because it is centered by the righteous rule of the emperor. Um, uh, this chensha this, this, idea was was influential throughout the history of imperial China. But it actually, in its philosophy, it idealized uh, the rule under the Duke of Zhou, which existed 500 years before Confucius, who lived 500 years before Confucius, and had supposedly, under the, during the, the, the days of yore, under the, under, uh, under the uh, Duke of Zhou, that's when there was the pure chensha And then afterwards, you had a certain fallen state, and people try to restore Chen Xia, but the, the the true harmonious world can never can perhaps never be fully revived. Or to, oh, at best, we can hope for partial revivals. Uh, and and then these contemporary Chinese uh, 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 new Confucian theorists in the Chen Xia school and also Zhang Shigong, they're trying to reach back to that imperial uh, to that imperial tradition, but then. Jiang Shiquan is actually, as you mentioned, quite uh, outspoken about that being a new imperial vision. But the Chencha school these, um, consists mainly of thinkers who uh, who deny it, who who claim that they can um, that they can revive this imp- this this imperialist this imperial concept without actually uh, creating a new imperialism. So they have some uh, they have some arguments to show that no, no, what they're offering is 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 a genuine new universalism. And yeah, it it borrows from this imperial concept, from this imperial tradition, but at this time it will be non-imperial, non-centered.
1: Just to follow up on that, I mean, to the extent to which these traditions are defined in opposition to the hegemonic Western discourse, um, I'm reminded of uh, um, reading some anthropology uh, about 15 years ago about uh, Islamist ideas. And it said that, one of the interesting things among Islamist ideas, Wahhabist ideas, and so on, which uh, um, is that there were forms of Islam that saw themselves as very rational. So they saw Sufism, the more mystical elements of Islam, as being accretions from Hinduism and therefore not true Islam. But the irony was they were trying to articulate this as a rejection of the West as well. But in a sense, they did it on the West's own terms of legitimacy by saying, we're rational, take us seriously by getting rid of the Sufism. So the irony of the or the paradox of the Islamist traditions was that they defined their opposition still in the terms of the West on the West frames of reference. And I'm wondering where China talks about rejecting Western universalism. Of course in some way they're they're asserting their own they may say it's particular but they're still asserting their own Chinese universalism. To what extent are they inevitably trapped in a language of response to the, the hegemonic framework?
0: I think at this point they are they do seem to be very much trapped in a in a globalized polemic context which is dominated by the Western cultural centers and which de facto, renders these Chinese counters um, uh, secondary uh, by default almost. And I, I think that it's very hard for Chinese scholars to escape this. Um, if you're a Western scholar and you're just you're based in the West, it is it is easy to it, it, it is easy to overlook the ideological power of, of these of the Western centers of culture. But if you're outside the West, and you're rooted in other traditions, or you're trying to revive other traditions, then you you really come across this 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 cultural and intellectual hegemony. So you're absolutely right. It is very much it is very hard for the Chinese to find their own voice. And I see this whole all these new currents in China. I see them very much as uh, being on the lookout for their own Chinese voice. But in looking for their own Chinese voice, they're still caught up in a polemical in a in a polemical landscape. In a in an international field uh, in which they play the role of the negator uh, the challenger and that in itself fundamentally transforms everything so this if you would have this if you would have philosophers in China thinking about Chensha all in the heaven her harmonious society let's say 300 years ago they could actually uh, let's say naively assume that uh, Beijing was the was the the world-grounding capital of the uh, center of the world. and and uh, But you cannot, they can no longer, uh, uh, contemporary fears can no longer proceed in such a fashion because we are now in a globalized state, but there's also a, but we, we live in a globalized multipolarity, which means that we're constantly confronted with the other and the other is, almo- is always present. So even if you try to, even if you try to not mention the other, the, the other is there implicitly in your writings. So... Um, so yeah to, to some extent there is this mirroring effect where a lot of these contemporary chinese uh political philosophies this new world vision seems seem to mirror western things and therefore seem to um uh seem to be caught seem to be um in in a in a in a in a, in a kind of twisted way re- reproducing the the ideological power structure
2: so uh, i've already referred to it and you just mentioned the fact that these theories are being forged and articulated in a in a world polemical context, but one of the claims you make towards the end of your essay, you you, you write uh, that quote polemical theorizing has an intelligence different from apolitical argumentation, and then you you make a number of very interesting observations. But it seems to me, and I'm asking you both to confirm, disconfirm, or elaborate. But it seems to me that what you're suggesting is that. What might appear from our perspective to be a weakness in certain theories, China, Chinese world cultural or world historical theories, um, on a theoretical level might actually be very valuable politically. Is that what you're getting at? Yes.
0: I am, yes. <laughs> okay. because yeah. um, um, because if you if you read uh, philosophies of world and worldness that define world and worldness uh, in in a certain way, as apolitical and as uh, and if you try to if you try to read them without taking into consideration the polemical context, the polit- the, the political points that it tries the text tries to make, mm-hmm. then you end up constantly end up concluding that you know dumb dumb mistakes are made. and so you can go not just through the Chinese uh, literature on world and wilderness, but also uh, through western centric and liberal centric uh, theorizations of world you can read uh, you can read Weltgesellschaft, german theory in the lumanian school or you can read world culture theory from uh, from california and um, and you constantly you constantly keeps returning for instance one way in which philosophies of world are usually polemical or that's the defining polemic you would say polemical point is that they define the, their definition of world Privileges a certain region of the world, or certain values within the world that are tied to certain political projects. So you end up uh, indirectly. The theorist ends up indirectly centering the world on himself or herself. So you. So there is a there is a there is a strategy there. And if you constantly just go around reading these philosophies of of world in a naive way, and then you find out, wait a second what did I discover here? They are just, these German fears. they're actually centering the world. That's so sneaky. And then you go to these Chinese fears. Then you're like, oh, oh my, oh my gosh. They're actually centering the world on China implicitly in this way. You can keep unmasking uh, world polemics that way, but then in the end, the joke is on you because that is the game that is being played. So if you constantly... Constantly naively, so I saw myself actually being in this mode, being like, "Oh man!" And then at some point, I was looking at myself, like, oh, "Come on, Eric, come on, grow up, like, realize that, and realize that this is the game that's played." And then, in addition, of course, all these fears in China, uh, but also in, in other parts of the world, they are also in domestic uh, battles. Mm-hmm. So there's in within China, there's this battle between there's this battle over should China be more chauvinistically assertive. And I would I would put uh, Zhang Shigong as a as a as a bit of a chauvinistic theorist, and then you have, for instance, uh, Jin Hui Min, who is um, very hostile towards that kind of chauvinism and really wants to cut off uh, uh, this kind of uh, jingoistic uh, Chinese style of theorizing. And so these all these Chinese these fears in China are very much responding to a global polemical context, and they are and and a blo- global ideological power structure and they are uh, pursuing uh, political goals or quasi-political goals or polemical goals in in their own in their own intellectual field. And usually to discover, as I wrote in my essay to discover what the what the polemical meaning of the text is, what what's the deeper underlying polemic is, you actually have to look at where the argument seems the weirdest or the dumbest, you look at the conceptual chain and then you, you find that there is a weakness. And that's usually where the, where that's where the actual meat is. That's the, that's so you think that so, but if you, if you proceed from, if you, if you go on in a, in a very robotic naive way, then you will, you would say, oh, here, there's a, there's a mistake being made conceptually. But then if you actually look at the, if you actually stand back and you actually look at the polemical context, then you realize, oh no, that's not, that's not a coincidental mistake. That is the whole point.
1: It's interesting to talk about um, the, the, the theories and the actual philosophies behind these things because we began this podcast talking about the uh, claims being made of the way that politics internationally is increasingly governed in this uh, performative concern for what ought to be and everyone's virtue signaling. And it seems to me that the culture, of course, is largely about what ought to be uh, as well as what is, of course, but the culture is uh, largely a collection of norms and not just verities, but the norms of how we think things should be, and and values as well. And I'm just wondering about what values really are distinct about a Chinese worldview that is harmonious but contrasting with the West, uh, to the extent to which we can say this. And and I I mean this in a particular context, uh, or I'm asking this in relation to a particular context, which is the context of international development. Um, So international development, as we've understood it the last few decades, is something which grew out of it was a it was a Cold War phenomenon. It was founded on the fact that after World War Two, there was a, you know, a great number of countries were decolonized. You had the Eastern and the Western blocs who wanted to compete for influence over them. And the Eastern and Western bloc couldn't engage in direct confrontation because of nuclear weapons. And so the way they could pursue this sort of cold war, this non-hot war, was through diplomatic engagement with third world countries. That's what international development was in the Western model. And what's very interesting for me is that the international development project seemed to me a very inherently Christian project, even though it was secular institutionally. It always presumed that... Uh, that uh, we can know the truth of society's problems, that we are omniscient, that we have the power, therefore, to act to fix them, that we are omnipotent, that we should therefore legitimately be everywhere solving people's problems, that we should be omnipresent. And then, indeed, if you look at the history of international development, its iterations really seem to me to map with Christian denominations. You have the sort of big sort of Catholic modernization projects, one-size-fits-all, top-down from the West, you had the sort of what I term almost the ethan orthodoxy of the Russians, of the communists, saying, we also have a one-size-fits-all version of development, but it's about not seeing underdevelopment as a problem, but the result of colonialism. right? And then you had the neoliberal sort of market stuff, which is protesting the role of the state, saying the states, the problems, like the Protestant movement. And you can go on and on and on. If you look at the the recent nation building, it's like evangelism. Um, if you look at the climate movement, it's sort of a judgment day uh, narrative about end times that we're bringing on the world. But the reason I mention all this is that in many ways, it seems that the coming of China could be f- fashioned or could be understood in relation to Western forms of international development as the coming of another faith, mm. as a challenging of the faith. Mm. Um, because, of course, China's engaged, as we mentioned before, in international development. I think 149 countries are signatories to the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and these countries are all receiving a great deal of funding, and I'm wondering: to what extent do you see China's efforts at international development—call it the Belt and Road Initiative, but other initiatives too—to what extent, to what extent do you see them as founded on oriented, founded on and oriented to different values to mm-hmm. the type of international engagement we've seen in sort of post-colonial period of Western culture since World War Two?
0: Oh, that's a that's a huge question. There, there's there's the one que- there's one question which is to what extent do the actual policies that are enacted right now display different values? Um, but then there's a second question: is to what ex- what do the Chinese um, what do the Chinese want to achieve? Do they want to have a a different? Do they want to proceed from different values? So I think that right now there's very much a push in Chinese intellectual and political life. To try to offer something different uh, so they're actually to some extent also looking for those different values so I'm not sure if that the fact ah, that so they're they have looking, a
1: principle saying we want to do something different and the, the debate is precisely litigating what is different yes. what is different uh, there's a sense that
0: Ch- China is there's a sense that Chinese that China because of its different cultural traditions a different cultural t- trajectory it's it's different it's so different that when it expresses itself on the world stage it should also offer as you call it a different faith uh, but it's it's still i think also for the, for the chinese themselves very unclear what that entails
1: so they're presenting themselves as they as a solution in search of a problem in a sense so what uh, are we trying to do differently
0: yeah i think i think it's still very un, i think so that would just be my guess so maybe there are some people sitting in a smoky room somewhere in Chongnan high who've figured it all out but my guess would be that they also don't exactly know uh, which is which is quite normal, actually, for human beings that you you don't really know what you're trying to offer, right? If you're trying to offer something different, it's still it's still a bit undefined. And I think that this whole uh, uh, this essay I wrote um, on this Chinese new field of Chinese world philosophizing. I think this whole uh, this whole incipient field. I see it really as, as something. It's not just new in the sense that it, most of its central publications uh, have have been published over the last uh, uh, twenty years. But it's also that um, it's it's very much conceptually in its early stages, where I think that this is part of that search for for a new Chinese world vision. But it's not completed; it's an it's an ongoing process.
2: So, following up on this idea that we don't always or we often don't know what we're trying to offer, your your essay ends actually on a very bright note. Um, you say that uh, that it's not all doom and gloom. That's a quote, so um, a very memorable <laughs> line. But you say these are exciting times philosophically. Um, philosophy feeds off the tensions between worlds and counter worlds so my my question is whether in a sense engaging in uh, engaging Chinese theory in the way that you're doing here whether this can help us understand better what we are trying to offer um, in the coming decades and, and years
0: yeah exactly I mean my whole essay was actually secretly uh, trying to uh, to get people into a more reflective mode so um I could have I could have chosen to describe, let's say, these Chinese these new Chinese world visions in an I could have I could have, for instance, described describe them in a more ominous way. I could have said, "Oh, oh my gosh, what's what's on the move there? It sounds rather fishy. Uh, who is challenging the the righteous order that exists in the world today?" Um, but in, instead, I chose I, I chose to describe um, to very much stress the commonalities. Uh, between these uh, Chinese world theorists and other world theorists in other places including in the in the in the the centers the cultural centers of the Western world um, because they're really playing similar games. so there's always these throughout history there have been uh, thinkers who've centered the, the world on their own capital on their own political project where they where they saw their capital as the as the center of the world and as the one as the as the 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 part the central part of the world that provides order and civilization to the whole, and I really much try to get Western readers because I assume that most of my readers would be Western readers. I try to get them to reflect and, and look, uh, for, uh, use the use also this Chinese field as, as a mirror because like once you start reading upon this uh, on all these new Chinese um, de- uh, attempts to to define a new Chinese cosmopolitanism or a new uh, uh, a new sense of, of, of world civilization coming from the Chinese side. I think for a Western reader, it's very easy to see the cultural bias, so to speak. You can very see that it's, that it's, it's motivated to aggrandize a certain part of the world, perhaps at the expense of other parts of the world. It's, it's to see through it is quite easy for from, from an outsider, but then I hope to denaturalize the, the very, the, the, the Western centric and liberal centric uh, world visions as well. Um, because those are things that actually, they play the sa- roughly the same game, so our theories play roughly the same game, um, but, we, beca- but because, of the, uh, because we're so close to them, uh, to the ideologies that motivate them, and because the West is so ideologically hegemonic, we might actually uh, naturalize them and overlook the, uh, their polemical character right so our our senses our sense of cosmo- the dominance the the kind the sense of cosmopolitanism which we have in the leading centers of western culture are are not necessarily fully disinterested and may also be attached with all to all kinds of particular political ideologies and our and when we have when we say certain things such as america will uh America is the leading liberal democracy and it leads the free world uh we're also assuming a a centeredness to world order, where we assume that uh, uh, that we have that you know America is not the world, but it can sort of stand in for the world, or at least for the the civilized almost civilized part of the world, and then you would have civilization and order descending from the American center through via the uh, via the American allies, and then. To, uh, towards the uh, to, to the rest of the world and then all the way at the world's edge you'll have the you know the excess of evil authoritarian regimes and those are those are uh, those are furthest away from the center of legitimacy and hence most illegitimate and we we are very we've grown very used in our public sphere. Of having of of reading discourses that are actually informed by this centering imagination. So if you just open a newspaper, uh, a Western newspaper, you will you will read about these authoritarian regimes that are you know on the rise, and we have authoritarian ri- authoritarianism rising in our own liberal democracies, and it's very much a uh, an ominous vision where you have the a civilized world center, but the but the barbarians are at the gate. And and it's it's implicit in that is a is a is in in a whole normativity in a whole normativity of liberal democracy is often perhaps not in all its forms but it's often very much tied in with an imperial imagination and I think that's hard for Westerners to see and perhaps if we'd actually concern ourselves with other world philosophies in other parts of the world or coming from other ideologies um, that would not that that. We could use it as a vehicle to de- destabilize our own naturalized assumptions. So that that was my whole, my whole game plan in the essay, so to speak.
1: What I particularly enjoy about that, actually, what you're doing as a sociologist operating in David's sphere of philosophy here, uh, but actually the, 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 what you've done is something that's very much in line with my interests, which are anthropology. And the best definition I ever read of anthropology, well, there's two. One was it was uh, philosophy with the people in it. But the other is that anthropology's goal is not just to make the strange culture familiar, but by through the through the comparative perspective to make our familiar culture strange. And I think uh, when you say that philosophy yeah, feeds off the yeah. tension between worlds and
0: counterworlds, it's precisely doing that. Why did I just have like a, a a five minute monologue if I could have just said it like <laughs> that? <laughs>
1: well, that's what the podcast is about. So, but on that note, Eric, thank you so much for joining us, and hopefully we'll have you again on when you've got your next uh, paper or book out. Thank you.